Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Hi, thank you for joining me. You know, before I get into the subject of today's article, I'd like to bring a person before you. He goes to my church, though I've not personally met him yet. He is on the prayer list, and I know this, uh, the family, I know his mother. He used to be involved in general church youth ministry and is a teacher now in public schools, although he's had to take a leave of absence. He is severely overweight, and he is possibly suffering from what they call metabolic disorder. He's very depressed on medication. He is a Christian, of course. Um, we, you know, and the medication, which is likely to uh, connect it to his overweight issues as far as the medication and the depression. And uh, that causes him to feel overwhelmed in life. And I wonder if I could prevail on readers to pray for this man and listeners to pray for this man. I'd rather not give his name. So let's just call him uh, Joe K. God knows who he is and uh, he needs God's help. He is at a point that I was about six years ago. I hated life. I hated everything to do with it. To me, it was very depressing. I was seriously overweight. Doctors warned me that I was heading toward uh, severe heart problems, high cholesterol issues, diabetes. Now, all of that affects the way you think. It's, it's part of what is called the metabolic disorder. And it's when a number of things like this happen in your body and kind of overwhelms your body and your mind. And you don't think clearly, you don't think well, you're just um, brought down by all of it. It's very depressing on your mind. It is uh, not good for your body physically. And it is amazing to me how when I think back, how easily it is to slowly kill ourselves with the way we eat and the way we live. I've related the journey God took me on to get me out of that situation. I've related it a number of articles over the past few years, and it was a long and difficult but very fruitful trip and a journey. And I'm still learning new things about how to improve my health, and I'm very grateful that God chose to take me down that road, although in the, the that route, although in the beginning I was I was very frustrated that God simply didn't heal me. But that would have taught me absolutely nothing. I would have been, quote unquote, healed, but I wouldn't have learned anything. And I would have gotten back into the same situation over time. So because of the way God did things, it brought me out of that situation into health, both physical and mental. And then I'm, I'm much more able to kind of walk on my own now and uh, still rely on him, but know what I should be doing. So please pray for Joe K. Please, he needs to come to the point, and this is crucial, where he is willing to do whatever it takes to improve his health, physically and mentally, and that will require an about face. Best done incrementally. You can't rush into something like that. You can't make major, major changes overnight. I would appreciate, though, your prayers. Joe Kay would appreciate it. His family would appreciate it. God, most importantly, will be glorified. Will you join me? I do thank you. As a matter of fact, let's pray. Lord, be with Joe. It's terrible. 
what he's going through, that what he's actually put himself into. And that's through no fault of his own. I'm sure he understands that. But he doesn't know how to get out of it. It seems overwhelming for him to look at his life and think, well, I can get out of this. I mean, how? Show him the way. Put people in his life, if necessary, that can help lead him out of it. Lead him out of it. Father, we know that you love him. You love him as you love all of us equally. Your heart hurts for him. I pray that you would direct him, give him clarity so that he understands and knows what he should be doing and how he can, in small steps, rely on you and draw strength from you. Help him to regain his health. Help him, Father. Only you can. Only you can, really. Thank you so much for caring. We pray these things in our Lord's precious name. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for that. I do appreciate it. If you'll keep him in your prayers, put him on your prayer list. And I'll try to update as time goes by. Well, anyway, the more I watch videos and read articles by most people who have made it a practice during these days to highlight end times prophecy, the more I realize that most of what they're talking about is simply news. It's really all it is. What I mean by that is often these pundits will discuss what's coming down the pike, so they say, or they think, and then they draw a line directly to some portion of scripture to prove, quote unquote, their assertions that we are getting so close, so close to either the rapture or so close to either the start of the tribulation or so close to whatever. Um, that's not how it's supposed to be done, though. Really, when we look at the Bible and scripture and try and understand it, you can't look at the world and then go, oh, well, let's draw a line back to the Bible. You look at the Bible and you go, well, yeah, we may or may not see some of these happenings in our world today as predicted in scripture. Now, as I've pointed out before, everything, in a sense, is bringing us closer to the start of the biblical tribulation period, because each new day brings us one day closer. That part we can be sure of. There's no arguing about that. But living with bated breath, thinking that there, that the next set of events are the events that will start the ball rolling or create or start the tribulation is really disingenuous, I think, and not good at all. I don't think it's good at all for people. I really don't. It sends the wrong message to folks. While I firmly believe that we are moving closer to the start of the tribulation, I really have no clue when it will begin, actually, though the Bible seems clear to me on the actual event that kicks it off, and that's highlighted in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, as I've mentioned numerous times, when Antichrist confirms a covenant with the many, most conservative scholars believe the many here represents either the leaders within Jerusalem, Israel, or all the parties involved in agreeing to peace in the Middle East, and that includes Israel. However, while there appears to be a great deal of jockeying for position today, a lot of talk and even action happening in the Middle East, but it's been happening for, for decades, for decades really, we cannot yet point to an actual agreement or covenant that stands 
and is recognized by all parties over there. I mean, they're really there. It's not there. There's no peace in the Middle East. There's a lot of talk about potential peace. There's a lot of talk about threats, too, and strikes and war and whatever. I mean, it's constant. Even when the talk about peace is actually happening and it is stamped with a covenant, that in itself does not signal the start of the tribulation. The Antichrist must be on the scene. He must rise to the top as ruler over all this, or at the very least have a great deal of authority and power by that point. And then from his vaunted position of power, he will then confirm the covenant that currently exists while he rules. And that's not happening. We don't have the covenant to begin with. And once we have a covenant, it still is not the start of the tribulation until some guy comes on the scene who turns out to be the Antichrist. And instead of eradicating or setting aside this covenant, he confirms it. He gives it a thumbs up. He will agree that it's a good covenant and he, he will keep it, allowing things to progress forward. So when that action occurs, then the tribulation will start. And I've probably been wrong in if if I've seemed to you as if I've implied that the tribulation is going to start anytime soon. If I've implied that to you, I didn't mean to in my past articles and, and audio lessons here. But the reality is um, everything moves us toward that, but we still don't know when that's going to happen. And it's certainly not there yet. And even if we have a covenant in place, which we don't, but when that covenant does go into place, it's still not the start of the tribulation. A person empowered by Satan called the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of perdition, the son of perdition, or the man of lawlessness, as Paul talks about. Once he is on the scene and he has enough power in his life to be dominant and be on the top of the pile and be the one that others look to for leadership and decision-making. When he is on the scene, and when he confirms that, oh, that covenant that exists right now between all the parties in the Middle East, including Israel, yeah, that's a good, that's a good covenant. Let's go with that one. When that happens, that is the start of the tribulation. It doesn't happen a moment before. It may not even happen in my lifetime. Paul thought it would happen during his lifetime. Others thought the same. And in fact, if you look at history closely, every generation, there has been believers who pinned their hopes on end times prophecy being fulfilled during their lifetimes. There were groups of people in World War I who thought that, again in World War II who thought that. Clearly, none of it happened. We're still here. We're still waiting and we're watching for the same events that all previous generations looked forward to seeing. So what do we do with all the news, all the information that seems to commend itself to us as some sort of documentation and confirmation or proof of what is really just about to occur? What do we do with all that? Well, what we do with that is look at it as it is. It's just news. And most of the time, it is rumor. That's all. It's news or rumor. Half of what I've read or heard in the past 12 months alone has not come to pass. Even though those sharing the information presented it as if it was so close, you could taste it. Now, things did happen. 
we've had major start of a recession. We're going to probably see more of that in 2023. Um, we're going to see more upheaval in the world. You know, that's just simply par for the course. I mean, this is what happens during these times because we've got people like Klaus Schwab and his World Economic Forum and all the leaders that are gathering in Davos soon this year to decide what's going to happen in the world. They're going to push all these things. And you might want to find out, by the way, if um, politicians and governors from your state have been invited there. I noticed that uh, Governor Brian Kemp from Georgia has been invited, and I guess he plans to go. So what's going to happen? Well, we'll find out after he comes back, I guess. But you know they're going to wine and dine all these people and make them feel like, oh, they're the most important thing in God's creation, and they're going to do everything to get them on their side. Because what they want is a political structure that is very much like, if not equal to, a unified final one-world government over which the Antichrist will ultimately rise and rule. They don't know that part. Klaus Schwab doesn't know that, unless, of course, he's the Antichrist, but I don't think he is. We'll see. We don't know the timing. Satan doesn't know the timing. Only God knows the timing. So I'm trying to avoid people who seem to have some inner eye that tells them things are close, close, and closer. Now, again, as far as Klaus Schwab and other globalists are concerned, their date to have everything in place is 2030. But even they've said they want things done sooner, maybe 2027. It must be something to do with the fact that Schwab is 85 years old and in seven years he'll be 92. So if he had his druthers, I'm sure everything would be in place the way he wanted it right now. But that's not happening. Yet things continue to move in that direction. I just read about the illustrious Biden administration and they're considering a nationwide ban on gas stoves. Do you have one? Well, you might want to try and hide it or something. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Why do they want a ban on gas stoves? Well, apparently it's hard on the environment, according to some experts. No sooner was this announced that Rep AOC chimed in and said, quote, did you know that ongoing exposure to NO2 from gas stoves is linked to cognitive performance? which might explain her lack of cognitive performance, unless it's all the liquor that she drank during her days as a bartender. I really don't know. But these people do things on cue. They do things as they're told to do things. So now we're going to see this big, huge movement to get rid of gas stoves. So I suppose if you leave your gas stove on all the time and sit next to it, breathing in all the fumes all the time, well, it might impair things, sure. But most people are smarter than that, and most of us don't use our gas stoves 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We use it to cook, and then they're off. But can you imagine if Biden decides to do this, ban stoves? It will cause lawsuits because it will not only affect millions of people in the USA, but it will affect the companies and their bottom lines who produce gas stoves. So in other words, I, I can't help but wonder if this really is an attempt to make gas stoves illegal. And if it has more to do with sabotaging our economy than anything else, you know, like when Biden decided there's going to be no more drilling in the United States for oil. And he canceled a number of pipelines and he canceled Alaska digging and all that stuff. What, is, what does that accomplish? Nothing. Because he ultimately has to go to other countries to get the same amount of gas, which isn't as probably quality 
as what we get in the United States when we do it ourselves. So he's destroying the economy by doing that. He's not saving anything in the environment because we're using the same amount of gas. He's just getting it from different places. But the same thing might happen with the gas stoves. But how would they enforce that? Would paratroopers or other military personnel descend on each and every home to find out if a gas range is installed there? And then if it is, pull it out? I I don't get how it's going to work, but I don't even think it'll come to that. I, I mean, it could, but I think there's going to be a lot of pushback. I mean, some might point to this and see it as a further indication that we're moving toward a one world government. Well, yeah, okay, but I see it more as simply the federal government overstepping its boundaries and deciding for the states what the states will have to do. And I can't imagine that that is actually going to go through, but... Stranger things have happened. We'll have to see. When the FDA wanted to make a supplement NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine, an illegal supplement, and wanted it only used as a drug, supplement producers and the public pushed back hard. The FDA finally backed off with, oh, okay, well, we're still looking into this, so we could make the decision to pull NAC from shelves, and it'll only be a drug, which will require a prescription, but we'll see, we'll see. Well, not everything is a done deal. Just because someone says something or issues their particular druthers or even issues an executive order, Um, we've seen that happen with mandates uh, regarding the CV jab, and now they're starting to fall apart and taken to court, and the courts are dismissing these mandates as being unconstitutional, therefore illegal. So if the Biden administration wants to ban gas stoves, I'm going to be one of the folks pushing back, as will gas range producers, gas companies, politicians, and others in the public sphere. Does the federal government actually have the right to arbitrarily remove something like this? Or should it also be left up to the states? And maybe the local governments? Or nobody? Obviously, every blue state would go along with whatever Biden wants, all in the name of climate or environmental protection, but others wouldn't give in so easily. But again, I could list for you many things that are said to be going to happen or may happen, and none of that would prove the start of the tribulation is linked to any of it. All of it proves, everything we're reading about simply proves that fascists are going to continue to be fascists. And I don't care how many times they have to change the definition of fascist in Google to make it seem like only right wingers or only conservatives are fascists. Fascists are essentially people who demand that everybody do it their way. And that comes from the left as well as from the right. So it doesn't really have a political persuasion connected to it. It's anybody can be a fascist. How many years have Democrats and rhinos warned they're coming from for our guns? Well, first of all, that's fascism. Yet we still have our guns, and apparently they've not learned by now that every time they threaten to take our guns, more guns and ammo are sold than had they threatened not to take our guns. So if they'd have just left well enough alone, more people would not have gone out and bought guns. There wouldn't have been a rush to buy ammo. Their threats create gun and ammo sales. Now, the threat to outlaw gas stoves may do the same. I don't know. But again, what does this have to do with the start of the tribulation? Nothing. Not a thing. It simply shows the intent of those who want to reduce our freedoms and ultimately imprison us further. 
I have yet to see anything from any of the current end times consultants or pundits that absolutely prove beyond any doubt that all the things happening in society and said to be on their way point to a start date for the tribulation period. It's all moving us there, just like each day moves us there. In truth, though, it could be 10, 20, 50 or more years away from us now. Many of us are going to be gone from this life. Yet so many are focused on it that in many ways, those folks are missing out on life right now. What we're seeing in society is what Paul illustrates in Romans 1. And I've talked about that numerous times before, so I won't rehash it, except to say that every society throughout history that has come and gone has done so because it follows that same downward trajectory outlined by Paul. When the Roman Empire started to fall, the tribulation didn't happen. When the Ottoman Empire fell, the tribulation didn't happen. When Russia USSR fell and broke up, the tribulation didn't happen. This cycle continues throughout many generations of history, and that in and of itself does not prove that the tribulation is going to start soon. It simply proves that the forces that cause a society to begin to slide into oblivion are at work in each generation. Unfortunately, people today are not students of history, so they don't know. So what can we surmise from all of what is happening if it is not pointing to the start of the tribulation? How would God like us to think about these troublesome events? And what, if anything, are we to do in response to them? So basically, what I want to get into while we finish up here is a bit of application. I mean, this is going to sound maybe too simple for most but the Bible is filled with how believers reacted to the many events that came into their lives that were designed to literally overcome and even destroy them. God allowed those events. Well, how did people react in, in Scripture? We'll talk about Lot, for instance, in an upcoming article. But generally speaking, people in the Bible either reacted out of human fear or they exercised faith in God. Now, to be sure, sometimes their faith was very shallow at best, but it was still faith. Other times it was completely non-existent. And I'm talking about believers here, not people who were outside of uh, the believing area of life where God is concerned. Yet victories were won ultimately by God through those people, enabled by the faith of those who had prayed and relied on his might, his power, his faithfulness, and love to secure that victory for them. So it's the same thing today, isn't it? That never changes. We see obstacles coming our way and we surmount them through faith, or we are overcome by those obstacles. Now, that doesn't mean even if one particular situation defeats us, we're defeated forever. It doesn't mean that. It means that we can get up, dust ourselves off, and keep going on to the next one. We've learned, hopefully, something from that situation. Those are really, though, the only two choices, aren't there? I don't see any others. We either believe God or we fail. It seems like a mediocre faith in God is almost the same as no faith, biblically speaking, although it could be a very good starting place for those who are very weak in the faith, and they ultimately want to please him by exercising that faith and God allowing it to increase. So really, here's a formula, if you will, 
you can focus on all that is said to be going to occur and all that is occurring throughout the world right now. And that often simply causes fear. Or you can peruse the news and know that some of it might happen. But because of your faith, you won't be overcome by it. You'll just look at the information and go, okay, well, what's my plan? God, what do you want me to do? What should I do here in this situation? Help me. Give me discernment. Give me wisdom, Father. I want to submit to you so that you can work your will in and through me. That's really how it works, right? The choice, though, is yours. And it's mine. I can sit there and look at every situation and go, all right, I'm going to try to figure out a way to do this. Or I can go, Lord, I have no clue. I have no clue. But I do know that you have more than a clue. And if you can help me, I would really appreciate it. Calm my nerves. Help me to understand that I need to wait on you and you will provide. That's what it's about. But how do we do that? Well, there's only one way that I'm aware of, and I'm sure you're familiar with it as well, especially if you've been reading this blog and listening to these audios, because I've mentioned it numerous times. It's the doing of it that is difficult, right? Because we actually have to want to do it. Not just one time, by the way, but every day. And often, many times throughout the day, as a new situation comes to us. So don't think we're going, oh, I did it this morning, I'm good. No, there's another situation, maybe an hour away, that you're going to face, that God wants you to be victorious over. So what do we do? Well, you need to start with, and I'm serious about this, read his word daily. I know that sounds kind of boring for some. Oh, reading his word. What's that going to get me? It gets you a lot. It may not seem like that the first year you read the Bible, but all of a sudden, as you continue to read it and read it and read it every year through from Genesis to Revelation, it's, it's amazing what you pick up that you didn't get last time. Study it as you read it. Pray as you read it. Commit portions of scripture to memory, and then repeat those verses to yourself often. Take every concern you have to the Lord in prayer. You can't tire him out with your prayers and offering your concerns to him. He's inexhaustible that way. His shoulders are broad. He has tremendous patience with us because he knows our frame. Offer him much praise while you're taking every concern to him for how he will work and for what he will accomplish, not only through you, but in you. Each and every day should include all of the above. It is easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to allow fear to push out faith. It's easy to think that God won't or can't help. As we apply his word to our lives, he is faithful to help us through situations. Take it to him. He doesn't want you to go it alone. Now, let me give you an example. The other day, the back end of one of our cars started making a very disgusting grinding noise. It was a metallic noise. It sounded like it was coming from the brake area, but either way, it wasn't good. Now, I'm not a mechanic. I didn't feel like jacking the car up and trying to find it, and I figured I might make it worse if I did. So aside from a friend who is a mechanic at the local school bus garage, I know of no reputable mechanic in the area. Now, that does not mean that those reputable mechanics don't exist here. I just don't know them. So I was really concerned about the noise, as anyone would be, and I didn't know what to do. Well, I tried calling my mechanic friend, but couldn't leave a message. He didn't have his voicemail set up and all that stuff. So I texted him 
And then I prayed. I, I, having no idea what the situation involved, I was concerned that if I drove it, I'd damage it. And again, that's that's a natural fear. It's, it's like, yeah, well, there's something wrong. If I keep driving it, it's going to make it worse. Well, my mechanic friend was finally able to text me back and said if I brought the car to the garage the next day, he'd look at it. I did, and the noise was certainly there as I drove. When I pulled up, he was amazed at the noise as well. He said, man, that's making a lot of noise. So it's one of those situations where it was still acting up when he took it to the mechanic. He pulled back the passenger uh, wheel off, and he discovered the problem. A rock had gotten stuck between the dust shield and the brake rotor on the back wheel. He assured me no damage had been done. So how do you spell relief, right? God is good. He got me through that situation, and it cost me nothing, although my mechanic friend doesn't know it, but I'm getting him a gift certificate at a local fast food place, and uh, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. God cares about every situation that comes into our lives. It doesn't matter what it is, big or small. God cares. He loves us tremendously and wants us to receive the blessing of watching him work, right? And the only thing he requires is our faith in him, however small it is when we first start to pray. Now, in spite of all the bad news that we hear constantly today, even under the guise of it being prophetic, take your cares to God. Cast them on his phenomenal broad shoulders. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Do that, right? In order to take our cares to God, though, it requires our submission and it also requires humility before him. Without humility, we won't even think to go to him in the first place. Well, I thank you for joining me today. And I pray that until we meet again, God would open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in him. Thanks again. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 